So every year, uh, when it comes time to start buying gifts, um, I have to make Carol a promise. Now, before I tell you what that promise is, I want to give you the, ba- the background to that promise. I think I've shared this before. Uh, I have a long history of being an absolutely terrible gift giver. In the first three years of marriage, I tried to give Carol clothes that she would never wear. I gave her gift cards to places she would never shop. Uh, And I uh, gave her appliances that she would never use. I gave her things that no husband has any business giving his wife. And I gave her things that were clearly intended to benefit the both of us. Now, I'll leave you to your imagination as to what those things were, but you were probably not wrong. It was not good. So for the last 10 years or so, I've made her a promise. Every year, she makes a list of things that she actually wants. And I promise to buy the majority of my gifts for her off that list. Needless to say, it's improved the state of our marriage during the Christmas season, lowering Carol's anxieties a little bit leading up to Christmas Day, as she no longer has to worry about exactly what she will open. Now, receiving promises from people you know will keep those promises can really help if you're starting to wonder about the future. Now, my kids, they get very excited when I promise to do something because they know within my strength or my ability to do so, I will keep that promise. And so a promise from me makes the future look better in their eyes. Now, this morning, we come to a text that probably most of us, uh, just like me this morning, probably skim our way through as we can't pronounce half the names on the list. And it's one of those things that we just kind of go right past. Like other genealogies in the Bible, we have a tendency to wonder what value they have for us. Now, what I mean is it's very clear why the Bible says things like, thou shalt not lie. And it's very clear why the Bible would say something like, believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved. What's not clear is when you reach a verse and it says something along the lines of Aram begot Aminadab. We don't have that printed on a t-shirt anywhere. Nobody has that on their favorite mug in the morning as they sip their coffee. Now, of course, there is a reason because the Holy Spirit told Matthew to put it here. And like all other genealogies in your Bible, where it's found is the key to understanding its purpose. And here, this genealogy comes before Matthew tells us the story of Jesus' birth. It is a Christmas genealogy. My desire then for this next four weeks as we prepare ourselves for Christmas is actually to spend all of our time in these 17 verses. Because I think there's a lot here for us. This morning, I want you to come to the first idea that I find here in this text, and that is this. This genealogy reminds us that the birth of Christ, it affirms that God keeps his promises. In a year where we all face so many unexpected things, it is good to have confidence in a God who keeps his promises. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is why? Why can I be confident that God will keep his promises? And I think I can give you three answers this morning from this genealogy. 
Number one, why can I be confident that God will keep his promises? Number one, because God has a history of keeping promises. Because God has a history of keeping promises. Now, we all understand that in a broad sense, every human is a child of God. But the Bible is also clear that God has always had a special people. In verse 17, Matthew breaks down the history of God's people up to this point into three sections. The first he talks about is Abraham, and then David, and then to the nation or to the people as a whole. So let's just remind ourselves of each of these things. Abraham. Here's a man who lived in what we know today as modern Iraq and Iran. And the Bible tells us he was a pagan, didn't know God. And God spoke to him and told him to leave where he was and go to a land that today we would know as Israel and Syria. When he got there, there were all sorts of different people groups already living there. And God made a promise to him that someday his descendants would own or live or occupy that territory. Now remember, Abraham didn't have children. And he and his wife were well past the childbearing age. But God made a promise to his descendants. There had to be descendants. And so we see in the, the, uh, the genealogy in verse 2, we got Isaac. And then we get Israel. And then we get the 12 tribes. And Jesus is one of those descendants. But then we turn to David and we start to the story of David. Remind ourselves, the Bible goes through great pains to tell us that David was nobody. When Samuel came around to anoint the new king, where was David? Out in the field. His father doesn't even call him, doesn't even think to bring him in to be looked over by Samuel. Later on, he shows up at the great battle against the Philistines, and his brothers tell him to leave as he hears Goliath's challenge. David was constantly the underdog. But God made a promise to David that he would be king. And David's line would always have somebody who could be king. And then someday there would be an heir, God promised, that would have a kingdom that wouldn't end. And we see every single one of those promises fulfilled in Jesus being the one who would have that eternal kingdom. And then we go to the people as a whole. And if we go through our Bible, we find all sorts of promises that are made for them. But Matthew has one in mind. The idea of the promise of the promised land. Particularly the the idea that they would return or be rescued and be able to come home. And of course, that happened. God did rescue them from Babylon. But we see over the course of their years that God did a lot of rescuing in bringing them home. He brought them out of Egypt. He saved them during the time of the judges. Rescued them many times during the era of the king. And he had already rescued them from Babylon. And so the expectation was that God was going to rescue them again. And this is clearly observed because as you go through the Gospels, that's what everybody's waiting for. Rescue. They just didn't understand that it was going to be rescue from sin. So the idea that Matthew is, is, is trying to set up for us as we get into the story of Jesus is he wants us to look for the fulfillment of God's promises. One of the things we have to remember is that these were people just like us. What I mean is that they knew God's promises. 
They knew those promises and they still scoffed when Moses showed up. They knew God's promises and yet still made treaties with nations they should have conquered. They still put wicked wicked rulers in place. They, They still, some of them, never even returned from Babylon. And if you go into the Gospels, you see this has been a constant struggle. As some people took the promises of God and simply made them inspiring idioms. They no longer believed they were literal or true. They struggled seeing Jesus as the Messiah, even though they could point to his qualifications. These were people who struggled with whether or not God would keep his promises after so much time had passed. They struggled with wondering whether or not God would keep promises when everything seemed to go the wrong direction. Would God really keep his promises with all the fear and pain? So if you struggle with believing God's promises, you're not alone. But as we go through this genealogy, we can also begin to note that we find people who live their life entirely based on the promises of God. Noah built an ark. Moses confronted Pharaoh. Rahab hid the spies, and they did it because they believed that God kept promises. Abraham left his home. David refused to kill Saul. The Jews lived their faith while in Babylon based on the fact that God would keep his promises. And for Matthew, this is his first argument as to why you should be a Christian. Christ's promise to save you is an eternal promise that he will keep. But if you're already a Christian, the argument's going to be in the rest of the New Testament that that means we should be a people of grace. The grace to give, not just to the church or to the poor, but to your neighbor, to your family. The kind of people, because God keeps his promises, who can do good to those who do evil against us. The kind of thing that allows us to flee temptation. Why we minister. It's why we don't always need to be repaid when we loan money or do good. It's why we have confidence as we witness in the face of rejection. See, God's promise or history as a promise keeper should really challenge the way we live. But why can I have confidence that God will keep his promises? Not only does he have a history of doing so, but number two, the second answer, that he has tied his promises to his eternal purposes. He has tied his promises to his eternal purposes. One of the things you'll note in this, these, this genealogy is that there are two types of names. There are ones that we are familiar with and ones that we are not familiar with. For example, verses 2 and 5. You find names in verse 2 and 5 that we, uh, we know. These are Bible stories, or they involve Bible stories that we've probably learned since we were children. Then we look at verses 3 and 4. Take a quick glance. How many of those names do you recognize? How surprised would you be that these are the only places you find those names? But what is the point of them being here? And the point is to show how these promises were connected to God's purposes. Let me explain. If we go back to the book of Numbers, one of the things we find out is that every family in the nation of Israel had a purpose. For example, the Levites, the only ones who were allowed to work in the temple. The sons of Aaron, the only ones allowed to serve as priests. You would need a genealogical record to keep track of all that. You go to Joshua, and you find out that every family's lineage would determine what land they were to occupy. That would play a role in the year of Jubilee. 
You would need genealogical record to keep track of that. Later on, genealogical records would would determine who would rule as king. And all of that were things that were organized as a direct order from God. Or we go through this list and we find ordinary people like Nason and Salman, who were much a part of God's purposes, Boaz and Jesse. We can see people who God did amazing things with, and we can see people who lived and died with nothing apparently significantly significant happening in their life. But when did God, uh, who decides who is used and, and when things happen? God. So everything from the organization to the nation, to the keeping of records, to to when God would act among these people. These were all the eternal purposes of God. So what's the connection to the promises? When we use that word, eternal promises, what that means is that these promises, they came from God himself. It means that that his promises and his his purposes are not based upon anybody's moral uh, performance. It's not based upon whether or not a group of people make the right decision. God made his promises and he has his purposes. They are eternal, meaning that God is focused on the things he wants to do, primarily to glorify himself. But what, that make, what makes it so amazing is that God makes and keeps his promises to fulfill his purposes, and the end result is our blessing. I want you to think of it this way. I remember one year for Christmas. I was probably 10, 11 years old. And on Christmas morning, I decided I was going to give my siblings gifts. I have four of them. Now, I had not thought ahead. So what do you think I did? I simply grabbed things around me and began to wrap them. I ended up giving my eldest sister a used softball. And she handed it back to me. And said, I don't want this. Who could blame her? Right? Because her getting a gift was incidental. I wanted to to do something, but I didn't want to do anything for her. I simply wanted to fulfill my purpose in giving gifts. I wonder how many of you have given last-minute gifts. My point here is this, that our blessing is not incidental to God's purposes. In fact, in the book of Hosea, God promises not only to accomplish his purpose, but to do it while blessing his people. And he finds a way by sending his son to be born. It accomplishes his purpose. It brings us blessing. And so the story we find in this genealogy is how that was accomplished. How Did he bring his purposes in line with our blessing? And it leads all the way to this X in verse 18 to the story of Jesus' birth. So why can I be confident that God will keep his promises? Because God's promises are directly tied to his eternal purposes. And God will accomplish his purposes. And if we go through the stories that we find in this genealogy, we see that he will accomplish his purposes despite our wickedness. Despite our failings, you see his purposes fulfilled no matter the national or international politics, harvest failures, pandemics, foolish people. None of it ever stopped his purposes. And so therefore, because his purposes are tied to his promises, none of those things will ever prevent his promises. 
Why can I be confident that God will keep his promises? Number three this morning, the third answer I would give you is that God keeps his promises to accomplish good plans. God keeps his promises to accomplish good plans. If you take notes, I would underline that word good. I want you to note, first of all, here in verses 16 and 17, the the way that Matthew words these final verses. He gives us this little commentary, all right? But notice, says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of who was born Jesus. And here's the commentary he gives, who is called Christ. Now, to put it that way, what he's saying is he wants to understand, he wants the reader to understand that Jesus was called the Christ by the people who were there. So the people who saw him walking around, they came to the conclusion, this is the Christ. But I also want you to note verse 17. For he says, from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now this time, Matthew doesn't say Jesus was called the Christ. He simply calls him Christ. It's a matter of fact statement. Now why is this important? Because for Matthew, what Jesus is called is very important to his narrative. We note at the very beginning, or we note in the very next section, Matthew records to us, or records for us, an angel telling Joseph to name the baby Jesus. And then Matthew records for us the fact that Joseph named the baby Jesus. So we now have two names, Christ, Jesus. And then in verse 23, Matthew gives us another name, Emmanuel. You call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The point here is that the promises that God made to his people, these promises that were fulfilled in his purposes, they were all a part of a divine plan for God to give us himself. Think of it this way. We can have confidence in God's promise keeping because he has a history of doing so. And we can have confidence in God's promise keeping because he's tied it to his eternal divine purposes. But we can also have confidence in God's promises because he always gives what is good. God is not a second-rate blesser. He is not a second-rate gift giver. There's nothing greater than he could give than himself. His name is Christ. His name is Jesus. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. I was saying to my wife the other day that if anything, this past year has proven something to me. It's proven that we can very much get caught up in sloganeering. What I mean by that is we can be really good at sitting across from somebody and saying to them, God is in control, as long as we're not the ones suffering. We can talk a lot about how we're going to trust the Lord when there are the risks are low or not at all. We can believe God's plans are good as long as God's plans don't push too much or ask too much. In fact, if you go to this genealogy and you had to pick any name in this genealogy, I would guarantee you the majority of us would desire to be Solomon. We'd be rich, all the pleasures of the world, we'd be smart, we'd have peace all of our days, 
our spiritual maturity would come about while we were surrounded by the comforts of this world, how many of you would love that plan for your life? We like that plan. What we don't want is David's plan as he ran for his life. We don't want captivity in Babylon. We don't want to be called from home. The thing is, all of those things were involved in getting us to the plan. God with us. Now, if you've had more than just a handful of Christmases under your belt, you've heard this before. God becoming man. The fact that Jesus has a genealogy should overwhelm the thoughts of our mind. I mean, we would be overwhelmed simply by a phone call from our favorite celebrity. On your social media, I'm sure there are lots of people who are doing whatever they can just to get somebody to pay attention to them. But God gave you more than a phone call. He, liked, he did more than like your status. He did more than any spouse, child, friend, boss could ever do for you. He gave you something more than you will ever get. He gave you himself. The God who can redeem the hardest parts of your life. The God who can forgive you, give you pardon for the sins that nobody else knows about. The God who can make you more human than you thought possible. The God who's at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. The God that kept his promises in order to be born in a manger. He kept his promises because his plan was and still is to give you himself. Now just again from a human perspective, having somebody in your life who you know will always keep your, their promises always makes the future look better. And Matthew reminds us here that we have that something better. We have a God who keeps his promises. He has a history of doing so. He keeps them and he attaches them to his divine purposes. Purposes that cannot be thwarted by anything. And he keeps them because he has good plans. Because he is not a second-rate gift giver. And on Christmas Day, he gave us Jesus. On Christmas Day, he gave us himself. That is why this genealogy opens the story of the birth of Christ with an affirmation that we can be confident that God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth that is found in this genealogy. And as we continue to study, Father, I pray we would see all the things that your word wants to tell us in these names. But today, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the affirmation that you are a God who keeps your promises. You have a history of doing so, Father, and you did them according to your purposes, bringing us salvation, the good thing, giving us yourself. And I pray, Father, as we look to the future, we would feel more confident because we have a God who keeps his promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your blue.